Welcome to Up Next. I'm Gabrielle Boucher, millennial author and entrepreneur. Each week, I bring to next generation leaders and millennial game changers to inspire you to change your world. Let's see what's next. Welcome back to the show, everyone. This is Gabrielle Boucher, and in this week's episode of Up Next, we are going to be discussing Trump's first 100 days in the Christian community, what we can expect, how we feel about it, and what the next four years looks like. I'm very excited to be welcoming back to the show Jay Richards. Now, Jay is the executive editor of the stream, our faithful and wonderful host here at Up Next, and he's also a New York Times bestselling author. He's an incredible lecturer, and what I like most about him is that he translates complicated things into terms and phrases that normal people like us understand. So thanks for coming and joining us, Jay. It's great to be with you, Gabrielle. So as we look at these first 100 days of President Donald Trump, which I've got to be honest with you, every time I say President Donald Trump. I'm, it still hasn't really hit me that he is, in fact, our president. Although watching in our press conferences, uh, it's uh, pretty clear that he is very much in charge. But these first 100 days in the Christian community, would you say that Christians are pleased or disappointed in our president? I would say so far. Of course, it depends on which Christians you talk to. But I think if you think about um, the overwhelming majority of evangelical Christians, at least, who voted for Donald Trump, my sense is that they're mostly pleased. I mean, uh, a lot of the stuff that, that President Trump, I'm the same way. I'm still hesitating to say President <laughs> Trump. It's just getting used to that. Um, and, and that he's done, I think some of the more important things have not gotten a lot of publicity. I mean, in the very first day, you know, everybody hears about these executive orders. Everybody knows about the executive order. It was really just calling for a brief moratorium on on immigration of refugees from these seven majority Muslim countries. That's gotten all the attention. But he's done several really important things economically. On day one, he, he signed an executive order minimizing the regulatory burden of Obamacare. He's done some great stuff. Uh, to minimize various kind of in environmental reviews that uh, they sound nice, but their function is essentially to prevent businesses from being able to create value. A lot of the stuff in his executive orders and then his, his sort of less, uh, less weighty memorandum, which nobody follows, have dealt with deregulation. And uh, the one in which any new regulation uh, that we get, ha you have to retire two older regulations. That's just right. genius. Absolutely. This is really good stuff. And if he would do a lot of those things, I think, he'd, I, honestly, I think he'd buy a lot of goodwill because usually, um, you know, these kinds of controversies you see at the beginning of an administration, they pass away quickly. I mean, I'm old enough to remember President Clinton's uh, first several weeks in which he had nominees for the cabinet that had to withdraw. It was one embarrassing thing out the, after the other. Nobody remembers that now. And so I think that's what's happening with President Trump. I think it's especially conservative Christians that were very heartened. I myself was very heartened. Uh, in one of, the, one of his memoranda focused on the Mexico City policy, which is that right. it's the policy that every Republican uh, supports and every Democratic president seems to jettison. But it just it says, look, our foreign aid money is not going to be used to fund abortions. Uh, that's a really big deal. It's one of the very first things he did, uh, and I think it's one of the things that he's promised. Probably, though, the weightiest thing and the biggest promise that he's fulfilled 
um, is the nomination of Neil Gorsuch Absolutely. for the, the open Antonin Scalia seat on the Supreme Court. This was, I can remember, because I myself was stuck in the middle between sort of explicitly pro-Trump Christians and never-Trump conservative Christians before the election. And the debate was really over this. Quite a place to be Yeah, everybody in. said, okay, look, <laughs> if Donald Trump really would uh, nominate a solid conservative to the Supreme Court, then I'll hold my nose and I'll vote for him. Uh, almost everyone said that because he'll be better if that's true Absolutely. Than, than Hillary Clinton. And so the debate was whether he'd really do that or not. Well, he has done it. And I think that's a really big deal. Um, and so I think that's going to buy him a lot of goodwill from people that, like myself, who sometimes cringe with some of the things he says about trade. Yeah, now that we're, we're in the, that first 100 days season, we're starting to see what kind of character and what kind of tone uh, President Trump is taking with him into the White House. And I think you made an, an incredible analysis there on, on the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court and what an amazing sigh of relief I heard within the Christian community that we actually have uh, a commander-in-chief who is is doing what he says he's going to do. And, and I don't know if sometimes that scares people <laughs> or that empowers people that, that he has, has really risen above the fray and he's actually doing what he says he's going to do. Yeah, it's powerful. And I, I honestly, I think it, it heartens some people and it terrifies others, depending upon the, really their policy views, which would be expected. I mean, I know there were a lot of people that were hoping, okay, maybe he will leave behind some of his Twitter antics when he becomes president. I myself thought, now the best way to look at Donald Trump is he's a package deal. That's how all of us are. Anybody, you know this, Gabrielle, you get married, um, and I know my wife views me as a package deal. It's like, okay, she'd love my vices to be gone and, and, not my, and my virtues to stay, but everyone is that way. And the reality is that Donald Trump is gonna say crazy stuff on Twitter. Um, I, sometimes I think that probably helps him because it distracts the media. But I do sometimes think that he's succeeding despite those things. And so we just kind of have to uh, swallow hard and accept that he's going to do those sorts of things. He does speak his mind, uh, you know, extemporaneously on Twitter. On the other hand, quite freely. Yeah. <laughs> these rumors that he had huge knockdown arguments and threatened the president of Mexico with invasion. Whenever I hear that, I know it's not true because he, he look, he didn't become a successful businessman and promoter and self-brander by doing that kind of thing when he's talking to people. And so he clearly has uh, the right kind of self-control in those contexts. And I honestly think he uses Twitter sort of as a as a steam valve, and that's just oh, yeah. disorienting when we're used to presidents having, you know, sort of barbed wires of security around them and every word they speak being analyzed. And so it's just something I think we're going to have to get used to. So what about those Christians who didn't vote for Donald Trump, who are now looking at what he's accomplishing in his first 100 days? How should those Christians be feeling about who is now the commander in chief? Well, I would say at least for conservative Christians that are interested in things like like life and r religious freedom, that uh, they ought to try to have some grace on Donald Trump. I mean, I understand the temptation if you're on the record as a never Trumper before the election. In some ways, your motivation is is to be vindicated, right? Is to say, okay, I, I, I want to be proved right. That's not a healthy attitude. What we should want is for President Trump to succeed on good things. When he does things that are bad or he says things that people disagree with, fine. But but let's not be invested in his failure ahead of time simply because we're on record as opposing him beforehand. I mean, and that's what people like Paul Ryan have done, who are, you know, longtime critics. But they're basically, look, if Donald Trump is doing the things that we think are right, we're gonna support him. I just think that's the healthy attitude. 
And I honestly think that we need to, to think in terms of a, a hierarchy of goods. In other words, there are really huge, important things like keeping America safe from terrorists and not funding uh, abortions in the developing world. And then there are other things that are kind of complicated, tax policy and the nitty gritty details of immigration. Um, that's, that's stuff that I think we need to realize all of these issues don't have equal status or importance. And if we use up all of our psychic energy chasing really kind of trivial things that aren't going to last long, I think we're going to have a hard time viewing the, the overall picture of the Trump administration. And I honestly think, look more at what he actually does over time and less at what he says or what the media tells you he says. Those things are, half the time it's false, unless uh, if it's based on anonymous sources. And random things he says on Twitter are not going to have a huge long-term impact one way or the other. Right. And I think that's a great example of even how he's expressing himself in the press conferences. I know we've been waiting uh, for the president to come out and actually address the press himself, which he's recently done. And I don't know if you caught it, but it was like an afternoon special. I was like, just forget the news. I will just want to watch the press conferences. It was. Honestly, I I normally don't watch those. I'm working busily on the stream and editing stuff. And no one does, but we are now. Yeah, I'm looking at Twitter and I'm like, oh man, this is something. And so I watch it. This is this has got to be the most whatever you say about what happened, the most entertaining presidential press conference in history. It's just amazing. And I, I have to be honest because I'm so frustrated with the long-term bias of the mainstream media and their delusional inability even to recognize it, that I know what I was feeling was what a lot of Americans are feeling. Finally, somebody's bringing it to them. I mean, really, it, it takes a particular kind of personality to be able to stand up in front of people like Donald Trump did in this press conference and go at them, hammer and tongs, relentlessly. And I suspect he didn't lose one minute sleep. You know, Gabriel, if I have a big knockdown drag out argument with somebody like that, that's going to disturb my sleep for a couple of days. And I think D Donald Trump is able to do that. And I just think, um, you know, he, he's a person that says, look, if you're going to attack me and my ideas, um, you know, I'm not just going to sort of pretend it's no big deal. And that, the media, if it decides to be adversarial, the president's going to treat them as adversaries. It's just that simple. And I think they're, they haven't quite realized that yet, but that's, that's how it's going to go. And I think it's so refreshing to have someone actually call it out rather than pandering to the press and pretending like we're buddy-buddy when in reality they're you know writing falsehoods about you and your presidency and, and even conversations that you're having. And so I, I really appreciate it. I, I like the approach that Donald Trump takes, and I call it the slap and hug, right, where he'll kind of slap people around. And then in the same sense, He'll be like, well, I could never be as good of a reporter as you. And then he goes back to slapping them. <laughs> it's really something. And it is, I mean, he is a genuinely, he's a, he's a genius when it comes to negotiation. It is his gift. If you read The Art of the Deal, it's clear that he savors that kind of thing. And so I thought, you know, Scott Adams, the, the Dilbert cartoonist and blogger that had been analyzing Trump this way all along, he said, look, He's not proposing abstract policies that he wants to debate. He's trying to make a deal, and so he's going to make extreme claims, like we're going to deport 12 million people. I mean, everybody knew there's no way that's going to happen, and it shouldn't happen. What he's hoping for is genuine border security, and that's what you do in a negotiation. It's not what policy people are used to, and so I think that's, frankly, that's Trump's gift. He also ma managed to master social media and TV, and in this age, turns out that's going to a really, really important skill, so that... You know, Hillary Clinton, they paid millions of dollars to have behavioral economists 
help them with their message. You know, I mean, actual psychologists helping them craft their messages. It still didn't work as well as Donald Trump kind of using the intuitions he's developed as a, as a salesman. Yes. In this negotiation, we saw him setting the table 12 months before he ever took office. He's been saying that from day one. And, and I think your analysis completely on point in that it's very interesting to see how he's setting the table and then causing people to, to meet with him in the middle. But as you talk about Art of the Deal, it reminds me of the, of the exchange between Bibi Netanyahu and President Trump in their recent press conference about the relationship with Israel. And it was really beautiful how Netanyahu said, we have no better ally than the United States, and the United States has no better ally than Israel. Can you talk about the relationship with Israel and what you hope to see President Trump accomplishing in his first four years in office? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't think it's ever going to be any president of the United States that's going to solve uh, the so-called Middle East crisis, which is not just about Israel. If Israel were not in the Middle East, there would still be a crisis in the Middle Absolutely. East. You know, but I, honestly, until the Palestinian Authority decides that it can live with and is willing officially to live with the state of Israel, there's never going to be a resolution to the problem. And there's nothing the president of the United States can do himself or herself at some point to, to, to solve that. But I do think what we can do is show our support for our strongest ally in the Middle East and one of our strongest allies in the world. President Obama was just awful on this. For anyone, any Christian, any conservative that's concerned about uh, our relationship with, with Israel, it, President Obama was a disaster. And President Trump is clearly uh, going to be a friend of Israel. You could see it on, on Netanyahu's face, is that he knew he was he was with a kindred yep. spirit. And yeah, among that, friends. Yeah, and this idea that got out there before the election that Donald Trump was an anti-Semite, it's just, I mean, criticize him for real things, but that's absurd. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence of this at all. His son-in-law and daughter are orthodox Jews. I mean, give me a break. This is, this is, yeah, he has, Donald Trump has problems. That wasn't one of them. And now I think that's, the, the reality of that is, is coming to fruition in that that press conference with Bibi Netanyahu. And so I'm very optimistic now about the relationship between the U.S. and Israel. I'm heartened by it. But I don't expect Donald Trump to be able to solve that problem simply because I don't think any American president could solve that problem by himself. And as you're talking about the, the challenges that we face with the Middle East, one of the, the most concerning factors which Donald Trump has addressed is, is this refugee crisis. And as you know, Germany is now paying people to now leave it is completely turned turned around. I don't think that Angela Merkel had any idea that this was the situation that she was going to be in. And President Trump, one of his first executive orders out the gate was to put a pause on opening our borders up to certain countries. Now, as a Christian community, how should we be reacting to this refugee crisis? And, and how would you encourage us to either support the president or come up with uh, a clear and just solution to what we're dealing with? Well, I think that there, there's a lot of superficial theologizing about immigration and refugees. There's nothing in scripture, for instance, that says uh, that we're under a moral obligation to let hostile people come into our country. There just is not. And there obviously can't literally be a right for the world's 7 billion people all to, to, to come to the United States. And so we're going to have to have some kind of rational policy where we say, okay, there's a certain amount of immigration that we can have, um, and, but we need to be able to absorb the people that we're letting in so that they become a part of our culture rather than a hostile enclave. And Donald Trump is the first 
you know, national figure, really, and certainly first president, willing to talk about radical Islamic terrorism by name. And the politicians for too long have been just delusional about this. I mean, we do not want hardcore Sharia-supporting enclaves in the United States. We just don't. And so we have to be able to distinguish freedom-loving people, whether they're Muslims or not, from other people. And at the moment, we're not doing that. And we're certainly not doing it in Syria and other countries in the, the Middle East. I mean, the reality was is that it was as if we had a policy under President Obama not to let Middle Eastern Christians in. It was really absolutely uh, flabbergasting. And you had Christian ministries here in the United States, and all the refugees they were placing were Muslims. Now, that, I'm not saying that they should never do that, but I'm saying, if anything, the bias was in the other direction. And I honestly think that the executive order was perfectly defensible. I think the rollout left with something to be desired, but I don't think certainly there's anything unconstitutional or intrinsically immoral about saying, we're going to pause for 90 days and figure out what's happening. That's all it was. It was actually quite modest. President Obama did several things about like this during his two terms, and the media, of course, said nothing about it. Of course. But the media is committed to, to two overarching meta-narratives with Donald Trump. One is that uh, he hates all immigrants, which is not true. And the other one is that he's, he's in cahoots with Russia, which is also not true. There are people that he's worked with at different times, like Paul Manafort, that I think did have questionable connections to Russia, but he's gone now. And so I think anything having to do with Russia at all, the press generally is going to try to tie it to Donald Trump. And in anything having to do with uh, with immigrants uh, that are, is a sad story, they're going to try to tie to Donald Trump. I think those are both unfair. And I think if you look at the polls, most Americans actually agree with him when it comes to uh, vetting uh, of people from the Middle East. It's just a simple reality. One of the first responsibilities of the president of the United States is to keep its citizens safe from external aggressors. And so that's what he's doing. And he doesn't buckle, even when the court strike a left-wing hostile court looking for a policy rather than to the law uh, strikes it down. He doesn't give in and he doesn't soften. And so I think that intestinal fortitude, as long as he's doing the right stuff, I think it's going to pay off in the long run. Well, I do think it's difficult for anyone to point the finger at President Trump and say he's anti-immigrant when he's married to one. But there's, <laughs> there's so many... Um, logical fallacies that are coming out out of the press, which, you know, I think only emboldens, emboldens the president to to do what he's been doing in, in these press conferences and really taking them to the mat and holding them accountable to it. But I am curious about those Christian communities out there, and I've seen them across the country as I've been traveling these past few weeks, who've come out and said, you know, we should really be opening our arms up to these refugees, and it's our Christian duty. Now, you touched on kind of this fuzzy theology that's out there about, you know, taking in the widow and the orphan and taking in in the foreigner and, you know, this good Samaritan type theology. And I've seen it on, on Christian campuses in particular. I was just at a university not long ago where that was much of the conversation that was going on with the young Christian students there is that they were saying, you know, we need to be doing this because of that liberal theology that they've embraced. How do you clear things up and give a clear uh, analysis of what we as a Christian community can do to be not only just, but also to compassionate? Well, I think that's both of those things. And unfortunately, you know, I was a college student once and I was motivated mostly by sentiment and sentimentality rather than clear thinking. And so 
When it comes to immigration and refugees, you have to decide. There's going to be some prudential question. Exactly how many people can we absorb and should we absorb? There's no simple Christian answer to that. You can't say, unless somebody say, no, anybody that wants to come here should come here. Uh, this would be, so really? So how about 100 million people who support Sharia rather than the Constitution? Would that be good? I mean, obviously it would not be. And so you've got to come up with some criteria by which you decide uh, the basic immigration policy. I'm, I'm pro-immigration. I'm all for immigration, as long as it's legal and as long as people are vetted. So we're letting people in that want to be Americans and don't want to destroy us. And we happen to know that there is an ideology alive in the world that is is lacing uh, large numbers of immigrants with ideologues. They've, they've stated that as a policy. And so anybody that ignores that I just think they're being stupid and naive. And so if, if, you know, someone, a Christian or not a Christian says, look, we should, you know, we have a moral obligation to bring in all refugees. I, I want to know, okay, so what's your limiting principle here? It's just like, you say, I think we need to raise taxes. Okay, by how much and on what? And if people are not willing to come up with defensible criteria, then I, I don't think they're being intellectually serious or intellectually honest. Right. I think that that's a, a completely fair analysis. And I love that you said, you know, is it okay for us to open up the door to, you know, 100,000 people who it's not only that they have a different religion, that's not the concern, but what you right. you honed in on was Sharia. Yes. And I think, unfortunately, many within the Christian community not only don't understand what Sharia is, which essentially superimposes over any constitution, any, any government sanction, anything, uh, and essentially is another governing system, which we're already starting to see in London where Sharia courts are now uh, being used to try people rather than the London and the, the English judicial system. That's right. I mean, this is hard for Christians because Christianity is compatible with several different kinds of political arrangements. Remember, it emerged in the Roman Empire. Islam is not simply a kind of set of theological and spiritual beliefs. It is a kind of overarching theological and political vision, which has powerful political implications. You can see it in virtually any Muslim-majority country in the Middle East, and it is fundamentally incompatible uh, with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It just is. It's not it's in a complicated question. And so if that's true, it simply wouldn't make sense that you'd want a large percentage of your population to have that political ideology because it's hostile to what the American experiment is. And we have to have that conversation. Donald Trump is, I'm hoping, uh, is going to allow that. Because what happens when you have a, a political radicalism like this and respectable politicians won't talk about it, then it leaves it to the unrespectable and the disreputable politicians and the radicals. And that's what's happening in Northern Europe, in Germany and Scandinavia. They've got a real crisis on their hands. And the official reputable politicians won't talk about it. And so you end up with the radicals uh, appealing to the public precisely because the, the officially smart people won't say anything about it. We can't have that in this country. All right, Jay, last question. So if you were an advisor to the president, he brought you into the Oval Office and he was asking you, how mm -hmm. can I ease the fears of Christians who didn't vote for me and make sure that I that I build a relationship and a partnership with them in the next three and a half years? Mm -hmm. What would you advise him to do? Well, I do. Th I honestly think that there is 
that rhetorically he's frustrating for a lot of Christians because he says he sounds mean sometimes. And so I would, I would, I would advise him maybe to, to help his tone a little bit, frankly, on social media. But I also think, frankly, the most important thing he could do in terms of action is he needs to sign this executive order on religious freedom. I mean, a lot of Christians that voted for him, and even those that didn't, were hoping he would do something to protect our religious freedom. I mean, we had Baronel Stuzman yesterday, the, the, uh, the Supreme Court of the state of Washington voted unanimously that uh, even though she had a gay clientele that she had been serving for many years and, and friends, she simply didn't want to participate and use her artistic skills as a florist for a same-sex marriage. It was against her religious beliefs, and she said that quite openly. Well, now they're going to destroy her personally and financially. We ought to be able to find a way to peacefully coexist. And there's an executive order that President Trump is considering signing, which would essentially create uh, protected zones, just so people can exercise their religious freedom. And it doesn't have anything to do with same-sex marriage. It's simply uh, religious freedom. He really needs to sign that. And I get a different rumor every day. Some people say he's going to sign it. Others say that, that Ivanka may have talked him out of it. But I really do think if he wants to win uh, favor with a large number of Christians, I think that's probably the most important thing he could do here in the next few weeks. But he is moving forward on things like the Johnson Amendment, which I think does provide some sort of ease to many in the Christian community. Yeah, that's the one thing he's focused on is the Johnson Amendment, which would basically affect nonprofit heads and pastors and priests, allow them to talk about political things. Uh, it's also, But it's also, if you ask anyone that is in the religious liberty arena, they'll tell you the Johnson Amendment is not nearly as important as some of these other things. So I really hope that he, I hope he does all of this. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, Jay Richards, the executive editor of The Stream. Thanks so much for joining us and talking with us about Trump's first 100 days. 